Welcome to Metacosm, a new podcast from Metatron Press that features long-form, in-depth conversations with poets and writers. In this series, we dive into writers' psyches and try to understand what draws people to this ancient art form, exploring and defining what impulses and experiences drive their practice. Curated and hosted by Metatron author and editor Brad Casey, Metacosm carves out a sonic space for intimate understandings of what it means in contemporary times to write. Hey, welcome to this first episode of Metacosm. My name is Brad Casey. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Ivana Baranova. Um, Ivana is this uh, beautiful poet. She works for the Poetry Project and uh, has a book titled Confirmation Bias. Um, this conversation took place in Los Angeles in late 2021. I was lucky enough to to go down to Los Angeles and do a reading with some, some writers there, some of whom we're going to be talking to in some future episodes. But uh, Ivana, uh, I sat down with her while I was there one afternoon in her home in Glendale. And we talked about, you know, who she is, where she comes from. Uh, we talk about poetic logic. We talk about writing as a spiritual practice. We talk about whether or not writing is therapy. Uh, we talk a little bit about also her time spent in New York because she was there during the early part of the pandemic. So, you know, this is, again, our first episode. And I think this is pretty indicative of what you'll come to expect we wanted to create a time capsule for all of these writers who we love very much and who we love to read. Um, and we, you know, talking about who they are and where they're from and what they're doing, but centering all of those conversations around, um, writing and, you know, why it is that they write, what it is that they write about, what they're trying to communicate through their writing, what their practice looks like, uh, how much inspiration comes into play their influences, um, whether or not they come from uh, education, like a creative writing MFA or uh, whatever. Uh, and so all these conversations are meant to, you know, create something for these people that we love. I hope that we're doing that through this podcast. Um, I will say that this first episode, uh, I was, I again, I felt really lucky to sit down with Ivana because... Uh, Ivana is a friend who I love very much, and it was nice to have this whole conversation uh, with her. Um, through the episode, you're going to hear a little bit of music, and that music is by For Your Ears Only. You can hear his music on Bandcamp if you want. And, uh, you know, in future episodes, we're going to be talking to a lot of different kinds of people. We're going to be hopefully getting a lot of different music involved in this. Um... But yeah, again, this is my first time doing it. Go easy on me, uh, and hopefully you enjoy. So yeah, this is uh, our first episode. This is Ivana Baranova, author of Confirmation Bias in Los Angeles. Um, thanks for listening. Enjoy. <laughs> Thank you.
like, uh, it's like not too acidic. We love an honest <laughs> coffee. <laughs> you don't drink coffee. I drank coffee this morning. <laughs> Are you still feeling it? I'm feeling it less. Now I think I'm in kind of more of a flow state with it. Before I felt a little too... Well, so it's like roller coaster feeling. Like the first moments that you're on a roller coaster, it's like you're kind of clenched up and feel anticipatory and are flooded with a whole bunch of chemicals. I guess the same way that you're flooded with chemicals when you first drink coffee. And then after a little bit, you just start going with it and acclimatized to the feeling. But where are you on the roller coaster right now? Right now I'm like cruising. <laughs> like right now I'm like... So you've gone up, you've gone the, the big down. Right, the big down. And now it's just straight ahead. Yeah, well not, yeah, straight ahead but with a mix of like straight ahead and smaller loops that don't quite elicit so much nausea and right. vertigo. Yeah, like yeah. nice kind of like whoop, like... Yeah. Okay, so I guess like a formal uh, start would just be to say uh, thanks for doing this. Of course. I wanted to do you first because um, uh, this is my first time trying this, mm-hmm. uh, trying this project, and I feel like we're pals, and it's easy to talk to you. And so, like, I don't know if I'm going to be any good at this right off the bat. So we can just like chat. For sure. We can just have an easy chat about this. Yeah. Love um. It. Uh, so. <clears throat> Tell me about uh, like where you grew up. You were in Bellingham. Where I, where I grew up. Yeah, yeah. Well, you... so no, actually. No. Um, I was born in North Vancouver. and hmm. lived there till I was five, and then my family moved to the Seattle area, mm-hmm. like a suburb on the east side of Seattle, about ten minutes from downtown, but sort of a suburban world of its own. Um, it's called Mercer Island. It's an island technically, but doesn't. It feels like it in the sense that it's surrounded by Lake Washington, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel like it in the sense that, you know, highway to Seattle or highway, you know, farther into like the east side. Um, and so then, yeah, lived there till I was 18, graduated high school. Was it like a suburb? It was like a suburb, yeah. It was a suburb, for Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Did you like it? Um, whoo, loaded question. (laughs) Did I like it? Um, yes and no. Yeah, yeah. Yes and no. I mean, I had, I had a beautiful upbringing, Mm -hmm. for sure. Like, um, beautiful family, beautiful friends, beautiful Pacific Northwest surroundings. Mm -hmm. Um. I've never been. Yeah, I to Seattle or to uh, like to that area of the country. That area. Of, oh, really? Oh, actually, no. That's why I, I drove through Oregon once, and uh, Washington. And you spent time in Vancouver too. Yeah, but Vancouver is like <laughs> very different. It is, but yeah. I mean, I don't know. I always think Seattle and Vancouver and Bellingham, I guess, too, are sort of similar. Yeah, I guess climate-wise, but culturally, they're pretty distinct. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I'll have to take your word for it. But my parents moved to Bellingham about eight or nine years ago. Hmm. But I was already, you know, so I've, I've visited and, and then I had a brief stand living there, you know, but. Okay.
know, English class, like in high school, and then just sort of tangentially, like maybe experimenting with it a bit. And then, but in college, I, I was writing because I was taking classes, but I don't think I took it too seriously. Serious in the sense of like, I didn't see myself as devoted to it in any kind of palpable way. And then... Would you say it was like a hobby? Not even a hobby. I guess, yeah, I guess a hobby, but more of like an interest and, fas- and fascination, but more of in like a low-key, low-simmer sort of way. And then actually in about 2015 or 16, I met a friend. I met Asia Moore. Right. And she completely, like, 180 transformed <laughs> my relationship to poetry. She did that through our relationship, like, through my relationship to her that, that was catalyzed. But how? She just was writing and reading and connecting with other poets in a way that I hadn't done since I lived in Montreal briefly. Because when I lived there... I actually was in an in an upswing of like really feeling devoted to poetry like for this period of time and just feeling romantic with it and feeling obsessed and fascinated with it and then it sort of like tapered off and then she was replicating that energy in a way that I just was so in awe of mm-hmm. and we just started hanging out mm-hmm. and we really got along and she would invite me to readings and and I was like, oh, cool, like, I could do this too. <laughs> like, I could also do this, you mm-hmm. know? And I always tell her, like, she definitely, like, opened up that spectrum of possibility in a way that I, in a way that it wasn't open before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's great. Her writing's amazing. She's incredible. Do you remember how you met her? Yeah, we actually met in a reading group. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What was that reading group? It was a feminist reading group um, run by some people I knew at UBC, I think, but who were also sort of doing other things in, you know, the arts community in Vancouver. So you started writing more poetry. Do you remember, was it any good? Did you like the things that you were writing? At that time, that was when I started... Yeah, yeah, I did like what I was writing at that time. Mm. It was, um, I think it was effusive and relationally oriented. Like, trying to figure out, like, oh, like, what, how, how do I understand intimacy and affection? How do I understand my role in experiencing heartbreak and longing and connection just like very framework kind of stuff where it's like I was trying to figure out how to bring my subconscious into language Mm -hmm. um and also you know like early 20s processing a lot of like what the fuck is going on (laughs) like who the fuck am I like I have all this pain what do I do with it and then kind of like being like I have pain (laughs) (laughs) and I can talk about it and like you know that kind of stuff right 
do you remember like the circumstances under which you were writing? Like, were you, uh, maybe this is sort of a, a basic question. Um, uh, were you like writing from inspiration? Did you have practice? Like, do you remember where it was you were writing? Yeah, I, at that time I was writing on buses and between classes primarily on my phone I think which mm. I've kind of not always done I, I would say when I was writing poetry earlier on like maybe from 18 to yeah like early early 20s I was writing in journals but it just I think what ended up happening was I would notice that I would become inspired to write poetry mostly when I was walking mm. and it just didn't feel practical to stop and pull out a notebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd just pull out my notes app on my phone, and then that became, you know, so any kind of like transitory moment, what, you know, I could just, because I think the way I write anyway, I rarely, especially now, I rarely sit down and write a poem, mm -hmm. although sometimes I feel like it would be a good practice for me to do that, just to intentionally place myself in a generative state. Mm -hmm. But no, like I'll just get what feels like a download like every couple hours mm -hmm. on a good day or a couple times a week on a slower in a slower time and just into my notes app yeah 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 i used to i used to write uh in public a lot too yeah but yeah. I, I couldn't i couldn't do that anymore like i used to go to, co to coffee shops with like a, a book that i would just write in it was always in public always by hand but this was, you know, that was, uh, I, I was a late uh, adapter with technology. Right. So I didn't get a cell phone until I was like 28. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> and like writing on the notes app was very foreign to me for a long time. That would just sort of be like little, little tiny like notes. Right. Like two lines, three lines, come back to them. Right. Um, do you still write in public? Do you still do that sort of uh, practice? Yeah, I mean, I guess I do. Um, yeah, every so often I'll, I'll be at a... I mean, but also, you know, this was more relevant pre-COVID because now I don't really mm -hmm. go just sit in like a... But I guess like... Yeah, but yeah, I will. I will, I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I like that because I like people watching and kind of... Also, there's something particular and kind of um, engaging about being witnessed while writing. Hmm. Being witnessed writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's almost like there's a, contain a container forms or something, like a social container, which is sort of ideal in a way because I think that my poems are very socially oriented, like thinking about proximity and connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did any of those poems from that time, did they find themselves in confirmation, confirmation bias? Yeah, that's where they all live. Yeah. I mean, though this book was written, um, the poems in there are 2014 to 18, maybe mm. even 20... 13 to 18. So pretty much all written in Vancouver? Pretty much all written in Vancouver. Right. Yeah, maybe one or two in Montreal. 
And then, of course, Chile, too. Mm-hmm. Because I was, I remember reading this and being very curious about the form. Because it is, and it makes sense now, because it is all, like... Mm, that's interesting. It's all, uh, for the most part, I feel like it's two, three words per line, and lots of space in between. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't find... Maybe this is maybe I'm like telling you who you are here. I'm sorry about that. But I, I found that a lot of it was like thoughts that may not necessarily be connected. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. Yeah, I think that's true. And a lot of them aren't mm-hmm. connected. Although, yeah, I'm always curious about that actually because I had a mentor at one point in 2018 when I was doing a residency at the BAMP Center. Um, and actually the residency was in purpose of kind of editing the manuscript that went on to be the book. Mm. And I remember him saying like, well, anyway, we had conversations about like poetic logic and associative logic in poetics and sort of like, cause that was something I was really contending with at the time. Like, because I was reading a lot of poetry, this was sort of like alt lit era. Like, and I think that's a lot of where I, even got inspired to write these shorter um, lines, you know, like where it's like, I want to buy flowers, you're on my mind, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I'm drinking a cold brew, like, look at that ladybug, like that kind of thing, which I think is kind of, in my mind at least, a quintessential sort of like reverberative, like lasting aspect of how I think about all it. But anyway, so, so I was kind of attracted to that, but then I, was struggling with, well, how do I make it connect and make sense? Because I, I wanted it to be a bit random, but I think in moments too, though, like, and you know, it's like hindsight being twenty twenty. like when I read this book now, actually two of the main things that I think I would do differently if I were writing it now would be to extend the lines a bit and have them not cohere more, maybe cohere more, but also just like impart more of a fluidity to them, but then also like, yeah, like see if I could tap into a deeper, more, um, not deeper, like, yeah, just sort of cinch them together in a way that feels more, um, associative. Right. Yeah. Well, when, so in my writing practice, I tend to just like, the way that I learned was through, uh, uh, like writing in media. Mm -hmm. I was writing before, but then when I started writing in media, it was like you just had to write your article, put it out, and you don't even get a pat on the back. You're just like, <laughs> okay, what's next? What do you have? Your editor is just like, what, what do you have for me t- right. today? Um, and so I learned to just like create something quickly and like put it out even though it might not be like perfect. Mm-hmm. And I guess I bring this up because it's like... Uh, I find it funny that you say, like, if you could go back, you would change those things. Mm-hmm. Because, like, are you writing differently now? Yes. Like, you are you writing the way that you were talking about there, where it's more extended lines and... Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So I feel like that's sort of how you propel yourself into your next piece of work. Definitely. It's like you notice the imperfections of your last uh, piece, mm-hmm. and you, like, correct them. Yes. So it's just like a constant correction. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And (laughs) 
Yeah, it's so funny because, I mean, it's just the classic thing that writers are always talking about, which is exactly that. Like, oh, I would have done it this way, but it's like, yeah, and yet that was an inherently necessary stepping stone Mm -hmm. that you had, that for me, I see it as like, I had to exercise that out of me and I didn't know any better. And like, also what is better? Because that was exactly the best I could have done at the time. Yes. And there's beauty in that, like, you know, it gets into more of like a, for me, like a psychological, like inner child, like where I'm just like, oh, like I was like fucking how old would I have been when I was writing those poems? Baby. That's baby. Confirmation baby. (laughs) Still baby. I'm still baby. That's true. Always, always been, always will be. talk to that like what does that mean to you I mean all the classic like and my roommate Kayla and I are always laughing about this because we get into the trippiest conversations and we start just like it's like tripper shit man where it's like poetic logic is like outside of time (laughs) like Mm -hmm. you know but I don't know I mean sure like yeah it is but it's, I don't know, it's like, it's not stripping away material reality because poetry can be hyper-materially oriented because of images and because of tangibility and because of wanting to possess like aesthetic value in a way that feels harmonious, almost somehow but then it's like also for me like so much about what's carbonated metaphysically in any given moment and so I think poetic logic in that sense is more of like to me resourcing from what feels like like divine transmission almost because when I'm writing I feel connected to source like I feel connected like I feel one with and so it's it's like a there's like a clarity it's like a the logic is like a a logic of clarity or like I was saying the other day like the feeling of a bell chiming but the chime being inside of consciousness and so it's almost like lucid tones or something that are transmitted as language and so the logic is just sort of like the way a song would be or like a melody or like a riff or something and yeah I don't know if that really answers your question (laughs) I mean it doesn't have to right I guess not (laughs) so it's like so there's a lot of connection involved yeah, connection, like organic, like resonant connection that mm-hmm. feels satisfying mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. Or like, yeah, satisfying. Because you're like, 
like in poetic logic, you can marry two things that are opposed to each other and make them yes. one thing. Yes. And I guess what I'm taking from what you're saying is that that sort of extends to the poet, where when you're able to sort of understand that poetic logic within objects and symbols, that you yourself can understand it through, I guess, like the temporality of existence. And you said the source, which I guess is like sort of synonymous with God or like the universe. For sure. Like everything. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Is, I guess that uh, 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 brings up the question, is poetry like a spiritual act for you? Is it a spiritual practice? Yeah. Or part and, of? Well, sure, yeah. I mean, not explicitly. Like, no. I don't think I don't think I would call it a spiritual practice, but it is one. Mm. Does that make sense? Like, it is one. But in the way that any form of creativity or any time in a generative, in a generative uh, space feels spiritual because... It's my spirit who's the actor. Yeah, I find that, uh, like, personally, I tend to write first thing in the morning. When I'm writing poetry, I will get up and I'll make myself a coffee and I'll just start writing. I'll Mm -hmm. write for, like, an hour or two. And it's pretty, uh, like, I don't really think about it. It's all just drafts that I come back to later when I'm ready to have poems and then I edit them. Mm -hmm. But uh, I say this because... For me, uh, uh, I see it sort of as like meditation. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just coming out of dreams. I still got this like symbolic log- logic in my brain, and I just sit down and I just like breathe and I write. Mm-hmm. And it's a very calming practice, and it's a way of like connecting myself to maybe like an unconscious, like figuring out what is going on behind the like thoughts that might be blocked by like ideology Mm -hmm. that are just like free and roaming right and just put them down not like in a therapeutic sense but it's just like you know meditative right right is it therapeutic though uh no no do you find writing to be therapeutic no (laughs) (laughs) although I feel like there are things I could I don't have a therapist right now but I think there are things in my poetry that I could bring to a therapist and be like look at this shit sure (laughs) um no but I know what you mean yeah definitely that's and that's an interesting distinction like meditative not therapeutic because therapeutic to me almost connotes something like I don't know purposeful in a way that poetry is not to me right or like goal or objective oriented or something mm-hmm. and meditation is not that it's for me it's being oriented or just like I'm imparting what's already there or what I'm tapping into or something mm-hmm. do you meditate? I do yeah like regularly? semi-regularly yeah um in 2019 when I was living in Brooklyn I um, did transcendental meditation training. Okay. 
and have since been practicing. And ideally with transcendental meditation, you do it twice a day, every day. But I'm like, eh. <laughs> I don't know. And sometimes I do. Like I'll have, you know, stints that are weeks long where I will. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just drop off and maybe do it once every couple of days or once a day. You know, I'll just fluctuate. And mm-hmm. that works for me. And I know that I have it as a resource. Although I do fantasize about calling in more discipline around that and other practices mm-hmm. to have regularity and an anchor with it. But yeah, mm-hmm. I love it. I lo- like it, it has really impacted my life. In what sense? It has just brought me deeper presence and peace of mind and clarity and um, lucidity, Mm -hmm. um, compassion, and being, I mean, it's not always a pleasurable experience being in the meditation because sometimes I'll feel frustrated or I'll feel, you know, distracted or or the time feels so long because it's kind of 20 23 mm-hmm. minutes total yeah 20 minutes in the meditation three minutes coming out um but other times i feel completely like trance state like really just reverberant and like gooey really gooey right yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I took a class, uh, and in the class we had to talk about, there was a point where we were learning about meditation and talking about meditation, and we were taught, uh, yeah, transcendental meditation techniques, Mm. and we did it, like, just through the weekend, and at the end of the weekend, like, I've never done this before, but I, like, finished my last, like, meditative sit, and I went to water my plants and I just noticed that they were beautiful and I started like touching them and saying to my plants, you're beautiful. (laughs) I've never done it before and I've never done that since, Mm. but I liked how that felt. I liked that state. That's so beautiful. Yeah. I know what you mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've actually, that's so funny. I've done that a couple times with plants or, or leaves I found in nature. Not regularly, and I don't know if it was after I was meditating or not, but I know I know what you're describing, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's such a precious, pure kind of wholesome mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. feeling. Yeah. Um, we can get out of the more like you know we're talking about a lot of sort of eth- ethereal things right now. We can get out of that in a minute, but I wanted to ask also um, because, and I don't know if this is something we can talk about, uh, but. Someone told me that you wrote this book after doing ketamine therapy? MDMA therapy. MDMA therapy. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, um, good question. I... Yeah, so this is 2018. It's actually funny. (laughs) This is classic me, I think. Uh, Maybe it was at the time, but... I basically was accepted to a trial um, with an organization who does, um, you know, psych- they, you know, they're 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 in research for psychedelic 
therapeutic psychedelics studies. Um, and so I was accepted to a trial for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, which ran through the summer of 2018, right before I moved to New York. And this was in Vancouver that I did this. And it was at the same time as I was at the BAMP Center doing this um, residency to work on this manuscript. Um, and so, yeah, with Hua Wen and Karen Soli and David O'Meara, who is the person that I, David was the person who I mentioned earlier, who put me on to new thinking around um, poetic logic. Mm. And then Hua was also fucking so pivotal and instrumental at that time because she's so mystical and, you know, so she helped me process actually some of the MDMA stuff. Not so directly, but in a way that was impactful. So anyway, long story short, I was like, for the first of the three MDMA experiments, I literally was in Banff and then like traveled back to Vancouver to do my first MDMA experiment and then came back to the residency and was just deeply processing this first uh, experiment. And it was, um, it was, you know, um, kind of a, a beautiful, hi. Um, it was kind of a beautiful juxtaposition and opportunity to like almost challenge myself to be in a space that at first thought, because I was like, I'm in this residency, I'm around all these people, and I was going through it, like processing like trauma, because like, the, yeah, that, that was kind of the purpose of, of the experiment was to, was to process trauma, right? So a lot of stuff came up. Um, and yeah, and really because that was such a pivotal and, and impactful experience and it really coincided with writing actually a lot of the poems that at kind of the final hour made their way into the manuscript and also mm. just the way I edited the manuscript. Mm. Um, yeah, and it was a beautiful, rich uh, experience and I'm so grateful. And you know, my MDMA therapists, they're like, guardian angels to me like they are forever like in my mind and heart and it was just a very beautiful synchronistic time mm -hmm. and so it really informed a lot of the maybe not writing but a lot of the editing at least definitely of confirmation bias definitely yeah yeah for sure for sure um how did you end up meeting uh or getting connected with uh ashley obscura who runs Metatron and put out confirmation bias. So actually I found out about Metatron through Asia who right. loved Metatron. This was like years before Asia um, published, you know, her book Hot Wheel with Metatron. Um, and I was like, oh my God, this press and, you know, they had um, their online publication too. I was like, they're so cool. Like, oh my God. And so I always dreamed that I would publish with them. I just loved what Ashley was doing and I loved Metatron and and so I think I actually published a few poems with them. And then I submitted a manuscript and um, twice actually. Uh, and the second time it was through the Metatron Prize and it was fine it was a the manuscript was a finalist. I was a finalist but um, Ashley reached out and said, Hey I love 
the manuscript and would love to publish it. And I was just, I remember I was in New York and I was, actually, I was on the train crossing the East River. It was like the most like, <laughs> I'm in New York and I love life moment. And I was already, it was such a buoyant moment, but I think I was like kind of tired from work also. And I was kind of like, oh, and then I get this email pop up on my phone. And I just remember seeing it was from Metatron and like just my heart like, doing that thing where it simultaneously drops and simultaneously like starts quivering and I opened the email and I was like I just heard like screaming on the subway and yeah, I was yeah, like yeah. Oh. true because it wasn't totally poetry but it was partially poetry I think I was like well I'll just first speak to like the poetic point which is like I was in Vancouver and I was like I'm a little bored Mm -hmm. like I want to go to some other readings and I want to meet some other poets and I want to you know see what's up in a larger poetry community and you know you know, and I use the term community lightly. Sure. You know, <laughs> for many reasons, which I won't get into yeah, now, yeah. obviously, but... Yeah, I had a big argument with someone about the idea of community and how it applies to but we don't have to... Yeah, I mean, one day we should, though, because I've got <laughs> yeah, yeah. a lot of thoughts. Right. But, yeah, no, I know what you mean. And, um, yeah, so... And I was like, yeah, and I'm like, what better place than New York? And so, actually, my sister had been living there, I think, already for two years, and she was like, Ivana, you should come out to New York, like, do-do-do-do-do, like, you know. Um, and, you know, I admire her so much and wanted to spend time with her. And she was having such a beautiful time there. And I was like, okay, like, why not? Um, and just to be in New York, you mm-hmm. know, what more reason could I need than to just be there in New York? And, mm-hmm. and I missed the States, too, because I'd grown up in the States, really. And... I love Canada too, but I missed, I missed being in the energy and the cultural momentum that exists in, in the U.S. And, and then I feel like it's all the more amplified in New York, of course. Mm-hmm. Did it provide you a lot, with a lot more opportunities when you were there? Definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, like you were doing readings, you were reading other, meeting other poets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of that. Yeah. All of that. I got there and... Um, actually, the first person I met... One of the first people I met, my sister had read actu- uh, met actually through a writing residency. And they were, a, they were a Latinx poet. They were actually, I think, the first poet I connected with in New York. And they actually ended up um, being instrumental in many ways. They got me my first job there and... You know, we went, we went to readings together, and, and then from there I just continued going to readings and connecting with people, and then I interned at Poets House, and um, 
Yeah, just, and then I was on Twitter, which I'm really not kind of anymore, but I I just started connecting with poets and hanging out with poets and going to readings and putting on readings and yeah, just, I think it happened pretty seamlessly just because there's already such a strong current for it there in New York and it just sort of happened organically because I wanted it to happen and I was driven to have poetry be important to my life because that's what it was it was important to my life Mm -hmm. it still is and I feel like even though New York is such a big city and the art scene is so big that the poetry community there is or the community whatever is is like fairly small isn't it like it's not it's not overwhelmingly big yeah that's interesting I think it's hard to say in terms of like number of people or number of events but because that math I I wouldn't even know how to begin to translate that math but I think definitely it does feel small in the sense that people know each other and admire each other and um want to help each other yeah um was my experience Mm -hmm. you know um so yeah it it does feel small and then of course I think there are like microcosms and microcurrents, you know, within the larger, you know, mm-hmm. community. Yeah. But yeah, it's a supportive and nourishing and in some ways insular uh, environment and, and pretty non-competitive, which is precious, I think, mm-hmm. especially if you think of other creative disciplines where maybe there's a little bit more competition, maybe uh, maybe disciplines that are a little bit more commercial mm-hmm. or, or something like that, you know. Well, I, I was down there a few years ago and I met this guy who was in, he was in the creative writing MFA at Columbia. Okay. And he said that that was very competitive. Interesting. Which, which surprised me because, yeah, my understanding, because when I came into writing, it was like uh, like community building for in a sense of like other people write and so you support them and you mm-hmm. like become friends and you like have readings together. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he said that the the MFA program was like everybody was trying to like one up each other. There was no friendliness. It was all very competitive. Mm, interesting. And I don't know if that's like you know we don't have to get into the whole like MFA versus non MFA right conversation, but um, uh, anyway, I guess like that was just like a count sort of a counter that I've heard of mm. in New York. That's funny, too, because I have a friend currently who's doing their MFA in poetry at Columbia, and they've described um, really enjoying it, Mm. but I also haven't kind of dug into conversation with them around it, so maybe there's more to be said, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, I I think it depends on so many things, right, like where you're situated, right, because you know, the literary community in Canada uh, or literary spaces and spheres in Canada, I think are also distinct. And then you you would say like New York versus Oakland, Oakland versus Baltimore, Baltimore, you know what I mean? Like, and then even within the, you know, and I think it's just there are infinite iterations of those um, like uh, collective spaces. Um, So yeah, but you know, I think definitely like the closer one is situated in terms of like proximity to institution 
I think I would say it does make sense that more competition and more sort of individualistic engagement, I would say that those, you know, qualities become probably more prominent. Mm-hmm. How long were you in New York? Two years. Um, and you were down there, so what year did you go there? 2019? 2018. 2018. Summer of 2018. And you were there like when the pandemic started and all of the uh, like protests were happening and demonstrations. Yes. Pandemic strikes, how much, and those the, all of the protests and demonstrations, how long were you in New York at this time? Like when did you leave? I left New York. And why did you leave? Yeah, I left New York in July 2020. So I was there March, April, May, June, Mm -hmm. four months of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, And then, yeah, I moved to L.A. because a room was opening up in my friend's house. And I wanted to be somewhere where I could just have a bit more space because I was starting to feel really claustrophobic in New York. And I was so scared of COVID that I, and it, you know, the intense fear diminished over time, but um, I, yeah, I just, even going out for a walk was like, yeah, so stressful. I was like, cause we didn't know how it was transmitted. I feel like mm-hmm. we still don't even really exactly know how it was transmitted, especially with variants and stuff like that. But. But even but at that time it was like nothing. We had no information. No, yeah, right, exactly. We didn't. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I came to LA. I uh, was here for two months, and then it, it it was still peak pandemic, and I was like, this is just too stressful. And housing stuff was stressful. It just it it wasn't the right time. Basically, I felt like the city was ejecting me. Like you know when things just enough things just are not working out. And so I took the cue from the universe, and I was like, all right, I'm going to pivot. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and synchronistically, serendipitously, fortunately, you know, um, my parents' neighbor and friend uh, left for the East Coast. Uh, and my parents, you know, were, are living in, in Bellingham. And she was like, do your daughters want to essentially house it for me? I mean, we paid rent, but it was very affordable. Mm-hmm. And so my sister and I were like, my sister was in Berlin at the time. And then she and her partner flew to Portland to quarantine because they wanted to be back in the States because things in Europe were also just Mm -hmm. so uncertain. I mean, everywhere, but they wanted to be close to home. Um, And so she, my sister was in Portland and I was in LA and we were like, let's go live in this house, our family friend's house in in Bellingham. Mm -hmm. And so we lived together for a year. And so all that time uh, in New York and in LA and finally coming back to Bellingham, did, how did, did it affect your work? Like how did it affect the way that you write, if at all? Yeah, well, it affected the way I write because I had more time and I had more spaciousness in my mind and I was on unemployment so I wasn't working. I was doing freelance work still, which I've always done. Um, But yeah, I had spaciousness. I was in closer proximity 
in closer proximity to nature than I'd ever been in my adult life. Um, and I was reading a lot and connecting meaningfully with people on long calls and connecting with nature on long walks, connecting with my parents in a, in a new way, my, my whole family in a new way. And so I had a lot of time to think and witness my consciousness change and evolve. And then I wanted to express that through language, which is my go-to. And I started writing prose, which I had been hoping would happen for years. I like started and stopped and started and stopped writing prose, like comedic short stories or essays. Um, started writing a novel, but like really just like blips of, and then I, I wrote an essay, like I fucking wrote an essay, which like something, a completed form like that, or a completed, you know, project or piece like that, I hadn't done with prose. And I felt really uh, accomplished, and that was towards the end, and so that's been a major takeaway of just like witnessing myself pivot towards prose, which is something that I'm kind of embarking on right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we were talking the other day about, I don't know exactly what we were saying, but about like there was that tweet that was like, Shakespeare wrote King Lear during the plague or whatever. Right, 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 right. Daddy Yankee wrote Gasolina during yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. potato famine uh-huh. of 1810 or whatever. So did you write King Lear? Did I what? Did you write King Lear? I wrote King Lear. Um, <laughs> yeah, I found that a funny time because it was like I couldn't... Uh, I was writing. I was writing more poetry. Um, and I think... Uh, uh, at first I couldn't write anything because it was just like how do I even contextualize my life under this uh, uh, under what we have right now Mm -hmm. without it being just very like obvious it's very like everybody was experiencing the same thing so how do I even express my own individual experience when everybody's going through this exact same thing right but it took some time to like finally start writing again, and um, I don't know. I I think that the, the I found that tweet funny because it's like you don't have to. You don't have to write King Lear. You don't have to write anything. You can just not write if you want. Yeah. Like there was. Right. A, it felt like there was a lot of pressure to write just because we had the time. Exactly. And then I think as soon as those memes and tweets started coming out about that, I think there was an almost instantaneous, yeah, like, reply of people just being like, hell no, you don't have to write. And in fact, you should just actually, like, allow yourself to be subsumed by hedonism and, like, self-soothing and comfort, like, I mean, you know, or, like, you know, put yourself into action like connect with what's happening around and like go be a part of demonstrations and mutual aid and like see what you know like get off your phone or you know whatever and and then there are all kinds of like now you should have a spiritual practice now you should exercise but like I feel that um I feel that I did I did feel relieved by people coming through to say that like you don't have to do anything because I remember those first few weeks I was 
I would take like four or five hour naps. I don't nap. I'm not like I'll mm. rarely nap. And I my brain was in such overdrive trying to process things. I would just collapse for a nap for like four or five hours. And that was after looking at my phone for 12 hours, just like scrolling, 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 like trying to gather information about the pandemic. And so, yeah, I mean, so I really wasn't writing for much of the, especially the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, or I was a bit, I guess, actually, but. And then um, pretty quickly, I think people started doing those online readings, you yeah. know, Zoom readings and mm -hmm. different forms of gathering online. And um, yeah, and that was around the time that Kayla, who I'm living with now, who I had met through an online poetry uh, workshop, at one of Elaine Kahn's workshops at Poetry Field School. We met, I think, the year prior, and we uh, did a Rilke reading. We read letters to a young poet. Yeah, yeah. We invited different poets to read different letters, and that was one of my all-time favorite like events that I've hosted. And things, events of that nature, like started happening more and more. People were hosting those, and that was such a beautiful uh, kind of like repurposing of such a hard time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that reading. It was really good. It felt really. Not to use too big a word, but it felt really necessary at the time. It was like very much a healing, like, you know, a lot of people getting together and reading this uh, piece of work that was so, I don't know, I guess tender. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I mean, we capped out the Zoom room, which was a surprise. Not not a surprise, but such a, yeah, such a beautiful surprise. Like, but um, it was just such a meaningful such a meaningful gathering and we've talked about doing it again actually either in person or online um but yeah that that is one of my favorite favorite texts and i was so glad that people came and yeah why did you choose that text um we both loved it and it had come up in conversation between the two of us and I read it every couple of years and I think I was either rereading it or it was at the forefront of my consciousness and um, and is just such a soothing and nourishing and healing text but also is so um, yeah like it's not explicitly that like it's also about creativity and philosophy and um, and I had a personal like that book to me was a poet actually gave it to me in 2019 at a small open mic reading I went to in Bellingham when I was briefly living there after leaving Montreal before I transferred to UBC and it was such a beautiful like romantic gift that this person had given to me and so when I went back to rely on poetry, in a sense, like during that really hard time in the pandemic, like it was such an anchor for being like, no, you still exist. And like, no, you're, you still have poetry. And no, you still have like poetics through friendship, like poetic friendships. And these people are surrounding you, even if you can't feel them and be with them. And here you are now gathering with them. And we actually read it the week um, of my paternal grandma's birthday, um, who passed before I was born, but who I look like and have a very kind of spiritual, deep connection with. And um, what's funny is that 
I didn't realize that the anniversary of her birthday synced up with that week until after, or, or just as we were about to put the event on, I realized. And as we were putting on the event, I was reading the prologue that I think Stephen Mitchell, who translated the book, wrote. No, sorry. No, no, no. This is, I think, the first letter. Yeah, this has to be the first letter. No, no, no. It's, it's the prologue, or preface, or whatever. And so Rilke and the poet he's writing to, because they went to the same military academy, and that's how they kind of were connected anyway, the, prof- the professor that they shared, his last name was Horacek, and that was my grandma's uh, last name, too. And I had this wild cosmic moment of like, oh my god, like I feel like my ancestor is speaking to me right now through this text. And I shared all this with Kayla, and she was like, yeah, we have to do this event. Like, mm-hmm. Or we were already doing it, but it, it sort of imparted even more mystical and meaningful um, significance. here yeah <laughs> um i'm in a poetry club with right. five of my friends mm-hmm. um three of whom live here so kayla my roommate mary clark my friend who lives here in pasadena as well and then my friend rosie stockton um and then we have emily martin who is in brooklyn no sorry she's in queens and then tess brown lavoy who is in Colorado, mm-hmm. doing her MFA at uh, the Jack Kerouac School. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they zoom in. Yeah, we zoom every Friday for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, some Fridays we don't. Yeah. Because of other shit happening, but yeah. But sometimes Mary, Rosie, Kayla, and I will, or you know, some combination of us that are here in LA will. Um, get together and be on Zoom together and, mm-hmm. you know. What do you do? What do you talk about? We talk about... whatever is alive, like... Uh, poetry, for sure. We're all poets, but... I mean, we all write poetry, mm-hmm. among other things. But, you know, that... <coughs> Well, sometimes we cry, <laughs> sometimes we laugh, sometimes, like, <laughs> um, you know, what we're watching, what we're reading, sometimes we'll process things that are happening in our relationships in life, um, sometimes we'll listen to songs, sometimes we'll just, like, talk shit for two hours and mm-hmm. share memes, and it's really just a generative space and connective space for us to, because it started in the pandemic like in the spring of this year well we had actually intended to start last spring right when the pandemic hit like right before the pandemic hit we were talking about 
having like a long distance kind of collaborative like poetry club group like wh whatever but at first we thought it was gonna be a workshop like we were like oh let the workshop like you know something a little more formal and then the protests started and um and we're like no we don't have time for this so we have to go be of service and just tend to our fucking survival <laughs> like um and then so yeah so we just tabled it and then we kind of were like like you know a year later we we're like so who wants to do this thing and that was i think maybe april of this year mm -hmm. yeah so what are you working on now um right now i'm continuing to write poems that are making their way into a manuscript that is pretty much completed um do you have a title I do have a title, although it's a working title, and it could sure. change. It's already changed yeah, yeah. four times. Right. But right now, it's titled Other People's Language. Mm -hmm. um, and it's done. I've been sending it to presses. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I'm also feeling kind of tempted to self-publish. Mm -hmm. But we'll see. Um, so, yeah, poems are still making their way into that manuscript. Um, and I'm also working on prose so essays that you know essay I mentioned earlier and and more that are sort of that I'm generating now currently and I've started um making photos again I kind of put down my photography practice for a while and it's been resurfacing and I'm writing songs I'm working towards writing an album. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's going to be a folk album. And I'm also working on a project with my friend Krista Anderson, who lives here. We used to play music together in Vancouver, and I think we're working on a project as well. Um, yeah, those are kind of the main things that have been, that I've been working, working on. And just like enjoying LA and being, letting myself be impacted and inspired by you know what other people are doing. I kind of want to pick up like embroidery or um, maybe like clothing design or just, I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious about other forms of making that I haven't explored before mm -hmm. for whatever reason, mm -hmm. you know. And again, maybe this is kind of a, a basic question, but you mentioned photography and I, I kind of, my brain clicked on that because I also take photos but I'm curious uh, is that connected your photography practice is that connected to your writing practice so much so yeah and actually wasn't something that I consciously identified although I was always curious about if they did coincide but it wasn't something I consciously recognized until actually a conversation with poetry club my poetry club um, in the late spring early summer of this year when I kind of realized that my for lack of a better term, um, well, basically what I would say is that when I get a poetic download, like when a line comes into consciousness and then I write it down, you know, like on my notes app or whatever, um, or when I feel called to take a photo to document an image, like that I see in the world, and this is why I try to bring my camera with me everywhere when I can. Um, 
it happens spontaneously and it happens without my, not without my influence, but without, it just happens, right? So the way I can at this time most articulately kind of put it is that like um, photos and lines of poetry alike um, request documentation from me and I'm the agent who is able to bring um, bring either that line or that image to you know material reality or to others or to mm -hmm. you know to a print or to a book or to a, a page or something like that mm -hmm. and it feels like the same kind of impulse or the same kind of like mechanism or something like that mm -hmm. So in general, your practice relies a lot on inspiration. Yeah, as opposed to like going to make something, yeah. which I actually wish I had a bit more of an impulse for because I think it would mean I would produce more work, mm -hmm. you know, I think, which isn't necessarily better, right? I think that's probably a pretty capitalistic uh, take, but yeah, sometimes I, sometimes I desire more momentum or motivation in my creative practice so but yeah like it's god's timing <laughs> <laughs> um and we can like we've we're over an hour now so we can kind of wrap it up whenever but i did want to because i feel like we could keep going for longer but uh you just said like maybe that's a capitalistic take I'm curious about your relation to relationship to poetry in terms of like producing versus or including just poetry as like a, a, an exploration of self and your environment. Um, how much of your work do you think you make to be shared in like in a book form to create as a book and a product and to sell for people to read versus writing for yourself to interact with the self and the environment around you. Is there, is there a distinction? I don't think there is. Hmm. In the sense that, well, actually, it's funny because, <laughs> it's funny because maybe that's exactly why this new manuscript is called Other People's Language, is because the poems aren't really mine anyway. Like, I didn't give myself language, and I didn't make it up, although I'm probably making it up sometimes just with my tone or expression or inflections, or I will sometimes, I guess, make up words, but more in a kind of playful sense, but like, I just mean that, like, I'm just recycling what already exists, or, like, upcycling, or, like, repurposing, or, like, imparting new value to material, material being language that's already there, and that I share with people, because that's what we share is language, and so, yeah, I don't know, and so, I mean, obviously, language and writing being mediated by the institution that is publishing obviously complicates things and that's sort of more capitalistic, maybe even commodified or um, production-oriented sense. Um, but and at the same time, like, that is how we, that is one of the ways that we do share work, mm -hmm. like, 
you know, I also read my poems like across the table to my friends and my, but like, you know, and they're all a part, but a part of the experience, but um, yeah, so I think it's both. I think it's both wanting to share, wanting to put in a book, wanting to publish it as well as as well as just like, you know, and what I'm always saying about poetry is, you know, not just that it's language that is downloading and requesting documentation, but also that it's a Xerox of my consciousness and that I couldn't stop it even if I wanted to. So in that sense, like, because, you know, it just, like, lines will just flash up like a, what are those things called? Marquees? Th those kind of like neon, mm -hmm. um, uh, neon um, lines, yeah, that you see on food trucks or store yeah, yeah. windows or whatever. So right. it's, it's like they just pop up like that. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so I, um, I definitely think it's, it's, it's both. Um, and they kind of alternate or coexist or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like when I wrote my, I wrote like a novel and I did that uh, because I wanted, like I created it within a structure that it could be made into a book and into a product in order to sell it, mm -hmm. not to make money, but because like I was writing poetry and I felt like poetry is really just written for other poets mm. or not even written for other poets. Sorry. I mean, like you write it for yourself and the people around you or whatever, mm -hmm. but then when it comes to like strangers who read it mm -hmm. sharing it with the public it's for the most part other poets other people who write poetry and I wrote a novel because I was like this is a form that uh, like I can share these thoughts and these experiences that I have mm -hmm. with a broader audience of people like I want people to read my work mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so I'm going to have to structure it in a way that will appeal to a, a broader sense yeah I know what you mean. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. And that is sort of the orientation of, like, literary consumption, mm -hmm. like, culturally, I think. Yeah. And it's because... I, I hate to be the guy who's, like, because capitalism. But well. <laughs> <laughs> because those are the books that sell. Right. I mean... And that's the way are. that we share within this system sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And... Yeah, and that's a whole other conversation that I could, you know, sp you know, speak to. But I think it's yeah, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. I mean, I think poetry is becoming more not like I mean, definitely it's becoming more mainstream. Like you know, you have like Instagram poets and things like that. But I think like it still has somehow. Like, everything can be commodified. Like, I think sometimes people will say, like, oh, poetry is one of the forms that has nearly, it like, al almost completely escaped commodification, but not really, like, especially now, just in, like, you know, late-stage capitalism. But I feel, yeah, like, it, 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 it is consumed more by poets, and, um, and, yeah, fiction is a, like, definitely an obvious and accessible route if you want to make money mm -hmm. and also have a, maybe a broader audience. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But 
There are some prolific poets too, though. And I think people generally are becoming more interested in poetry. There's been like a cultural shift, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but who knows what will happen next. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap it up? Just to thank you for this conversation. Yeah, thank you. Feels like a really natural extension from all the long conversations we've been having over the past few days, and I'm so glad that you are here and you came to visit. It's been and, such and a really wonderful getting into time. the nitty gritty. Yeah. <laughs> when am I gonna ever ask you what is poetic logic? <laughs> exactly. Instead, I'll just be riffing, you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this was great. If you're happy, I'm happy. I'm happy. Perfect. Bye.